Hello, everybody, and welcome in to fake episode number 300 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question is, should the church feed the hungry? So happy Thursday, friends. I know the title says episode number 300, but I'll remind you again that it is a fake episode 300, partially because I messed up the numbering one or two days. I can't really count, of course. And also because we had one day, maybe two times, I don't remember, but one or two times where I split the reading and the commentary into two episodes because the commentary was really way too long. I was a little rambly that day. In reality, today is day number 296 of the year, and we have 71 days left in this most challenging of years. Our Bible readings for this lovely day, though, are 2 Kings chapter 3, Psalm 114 and 115, Daniel 7, and 2 Thessalonians 3. Now, here's a riddle for you, and it has absolutely nothing to do with today's readings, but I was just reminded of it because it just happened. Answer the riddle correctly. This will be a contest. The first to answer the riddle correctly, I'll send you one of the books I've written for free in the mail via Amazon. You will find it to be a treasure that will be worth somewhere between a 2014 bent penny with a slight nick in its side and a $20 bill. Where exactly it fits on that scale? Well, that'll be yours to determine. Here's the riddle. Every night when my 16-year-old son goes into his room to go to the bed, he closes his door and I hear him talking and a voice responds. Nobody is in his room and he is not talking to any person in the family or on his phone nor any animal. In 2002, this would be a far more puzzling riddle than it is today. So what's going on? I'll give you a one small hint. Hot Earl Grey tea. Let the reader understand. Though we won't be focusing in on Daniel chapter 7 today, I do want to point out the description of God, uh, the Ancient of Days, in this passage. I still think episode 69 of this podcast, way back in March, entitled, What Does God Look Like?, is one of my favorites, mostly because the research for that episode was so interesting. I don't think I'd ever before put together all of the descriptions of God in the Bible and looked at them all at once. And I was really amazed to find out just how often fire was part of the description of God's appearance and his setting and his throne room, etc. Now, we're going to see it really, really clearly today in our Daniel 7 passage. Two verses from there, Daniel 7, 9, and 10 says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. Well, three mentions of fire in this one short description. This is fascinating. What does it even mean? Do thrones have wheels? I wasn't aware of this. I guess it's because I'm not a king. But like I said, we're not focusing on Daniel 7 today but rather on 2 Thessalonians 3, our first time in the New Testament in close to a week. Our question today is one that might have a surprising answer, and honestly, it might be off-putting to some of you, but just bear with me and see if we can get to a good place with it. Should Christians feed the hungry? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, with one exception, oddly enough. Now, before we get to the exception, however, let us look at the commands we have to feed the hungry because they're all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. For instance, Proverbs 25, 21 says, 
If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. You know, you've probably heard that passage because Paul quotes it in Romans 12. Uh, but it's a quote from this proverb. How about Isaiah 58:10? If you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. This is a promise of from God to those who take care of the hungry and help the person that is afflicted and in need of food. God says, I'm going to make my light shine on you and your darkness will be like the noonday. Of course, we're familiar with Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where he separates the people into the sheep and the goats and he tells the sheep why they're the sheep. He says, uh, he, he says, because you, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in jail, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me, etc." Then verse 37, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So yes, the people of God are called to feed the hungry. Absolutely. There's great blessing associated with doing so. However, there's one exception to this, and it might surprise you a little bit. So let's read our 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 passage and see if you can hear it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle, that's I-D-L-E, and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They're not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him an enemy. Warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul... I'm writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So, you see the key passage there, what Paul commands in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. So, it's a very interesting command, very clear command, and it's an interesting exception to our Christian calling and duty to care for the poor and needy. We are not to feed the hungry who are unwilling to work. So let's ponder that command for a moment. First, a few few things that I don't believe this command means. I don't think this is a prohibition against helping somebody who doesn't have a job. 
This is a prohibition against helping somebody who is unwilling to work. I I think all men should work beyond a shadow of a doubt, but the Bible does not command all people to have a 9-to-5 or a desk job or to work for an employer or whatever. If somebody's a farmer or an independent contractor or something like that and they're working, I think that fulfills this command. Okay, this is not a prohibition against helping somebody who is unemployed but trying to get a job and willing to work. This is a prohibition against helping the idle. Again, I-D-L-E. That means somebody that's just kind of sitting there like a bump. Those people who are unwilling to work. Number three, this is not a prohibition against helping the sick or injured or disabled. We are called to care for those people. Now, there is a fine line here. Some seek to abuse our current disability systems and pretend to be unable to work when they're able to work just fine. When such a ploy is discerned accurately, I think the church is not to help somebody who is unwilling to work in trying to game the system, so to speak. But if somebody is willing to work, we do help them, even if they're sick, injured, or disabled. Finally, this is not a prohibition against helping widows and orphans and women abandoned by their husbands who have children to take care of. James 1.26 tells us exactly how to treat widows and orphans and tells us that God calls and expects us to look out for them. And I kind of believe abandoned women, like women that are left by their husbands for whatever reason, probably fall more into the category of widow than outside of it. Now, the thrust of the teachings of the Bible command Christians to give to those in need and to help in any and every way. The command here is one that keeps us from enabling the lazy and the idle, a principle which is articulated in several places in Scripture, including Proverbs 19.15, which says, Laziness induces deep sleep, and a lazy person will go hungry. Now, uh, the church I was at before the one I'm currently at in Salinas, church back in Alabama, I was there for almost 11 years, I think, and our church had a food ministry, a food pantry. I didn't start it, but I worked in it um, the whole time I was there. I expect our current church will begin a food ministry in the very near future. But one thing we had to be diligent with back then, and one thing we'll have to be diligent with in the future, is to not enable the lazy and the idle. Now, we do want to help the lazy and the idle. We want to help them work. We want to help them be more fruitful. And we want to help them live a life of impact. At that church, in the past, we had a group of three to four guys that would come to our food pantry most months. I think they still might do that. Those guys lived in tents or like a broken down RV or something like that. They lived in the woods and they didn't have steady jobs. They fished and hunted for sustenance and they did odd jobs. But you know what? They worked. They didn't live like everybody else lived, but they worked and they were willing to work. So of course, we're happy to help them with food. Paul's not setting for us an impossibly high bar to receive aid from the church. He's just saying that people must be working somehow, some way in order to receive food and aid from the church. Now, does this mean you're an individual Christian, you're walking down the street, and somebody comes up to you hungry and asks for a meal or a few dollars? Does it mean that you must ensure that they work for it or check their papers to see if they have a job? Or that you like say, oh, hang on, I'm going to need you to work for me for an hour uh, cleaning up my car or whatever before I give uh, you any food or help? I don't think so. I don't think this is a prohibition on a single Christian helping a person in a single time. I I don't think so. I'm perfectly happy to, uh, if the situation is uh, convenient or or, uh, 
able to handle it. I'm perfectly happy with you asking somebody to work, you know, cut your grass or something like that for food. Um, I think it's good for them, good for you. But I think this command is more directed to the church as a whole to not enable the idol by giving them food in an ongoing way, like say through a food pantry or some such ministry like that. We are not to enable the idol. Um, and, and if, if you do want to help somebody out again on a one-time like basis, I would encourage you to give them food rather than money. Um, not that it's your job to figure out what that person is going to use it for, but I think there's a much better chance of them using it for a good thing if you give them food rather than cash. Uh, but what sort of situations might this command apply to? Well, I live in a city in California, a lovely city, but it has a tremendous homeless problem. Like the kind of homeless problem I would have had no conception of growing up in the South. Never seen anything like the homeless po- problem in California. Like an amazing amount of the percentage of homeless people in the United States of America live in California. And uh, should the church feed the homeless? Absolutely. Of course, unless they are idle and not working. We shouldn't feed the idle as a church, whether they are homed or homeless or whatever. The homeless part has no bearing on the equation. It's the idle part. We Remembering that Jesus said he had no place to lay his head. So should the church stigmatize the homeless? You better believe we should not do that because apparently for most of his ministry time, Jesus did not have a home. So, you know, we follow the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings who did not live in a home. Now, maybe there's some small possibility that he had a home. Uh, We don't know that. There's some grammar in the New Testament that might indicate that Jesus had a house or at least a place to stay. But really, it's hard to say. And we do know he said, I don't have a place to lay my head. So at least at that time, it sounds like he was homeless. So is there a stigma in the church for being homeless? No, there's not. There is a stigma, however, for being idle and lazy. Now, we have several people, not going to call names, I don't think I know their names, but we have several people that park near our church, which is in the middle of downtown Salinas, and they pretty much do nothing all day but hang out near their cars, sit in their cars, listen to music, talk, or things like that. I think that's the very definition of idleness, and I don't believe the church should feed them. Should the government feed them? Well, I don't think the Bible forbids that. It forbids the church from doing it, the Christians from doing it. Uh, if the government wants to do that, that's that's fine. It's none of my business. Don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I would rather idle people not be enabled, don't get me wrong, but I know what our call is to do. Now, we have homeless people, on the other hand, that come to our church and are contributing members. They do odd jobs. They collect cans. They help out with their hands whenever they can. And if they need food, of course, we're happy to help them. Because like I said, the homeless part has nothing to do with the command here. When they are in need, when anybody is in need, we want to help them if they are working. That's very, very important. Should there be a stigma attached to people needing food? Well, I sure hope not. I I would say absolutely not. I will tell you, just being a little vulnerable here as a father of five, uh, I can tell you without a lot of shame, at least, that Our family has used the church food pantry before. In the past, when the kids were young and the, you know, funds were stretched tighter than they are today, uh, we've used the food pantry before and and it's been a huge help. So should there be a stigma on people that need help with food? No, there's no stigma on that 
in the least. The stigma is on people who are not willing to work. What if they stink at their job? I don't care at that. What if they're anything but successful? I don't care about that. Some people are going to struggle. We, we help the struggling. We just don't help the idle. And the whole point of that is that they would sort of be freed from being idle. Uh, we must feed the hungry, but we must not feed and enable the idle. The moment they move from being idle to being productive, yeah, let's feed them. We must do that. So I want to close with a couple of uh, little um, uh, hits on this passage from Charles Spurgeon. In, in one, he says, It is said that slings were first used in the Balearic Isles. The little boys in the Majorcas, I suppose they were Menorcas then, haha, used to have their breakfast put upon a beam, and they had a sling and a stone given to them, and if they could not knock over their food, they had to go without. You don't need to be told that this capital, capital practice soon made them very expert in the use of the sling. The best way to make your boys men is not to cuddle and coddle them, but to make them work. That is a grand old rule in the Bible, that if any man would not work, neither should he eat. That's good old Charles Spurgeon there. One more. Talking about uh, Jesus's teachings, when he said, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we be clothed with? How are we to understand this precept? Spurgeon says, certainly we are not to understand it in the sense of the idler, the person being idle, who says, God will provide, and therefore there's no need for me to work. God's providence is my inheritance, and therefore I'm just going to fold my arms and sit still. The man who talks and acts in that fashion, says Spurgeon, will have thorns on his land, emptiness in his cupboard, rags on his back, and ruin to his character, and all of that will serve him right. Because Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, This we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And it would perhaps be the best way of treating some men if they were never allowed to eat anything except what they had themselves earned. Of course, this rule would not apply in the case of those who are disabled by old age or laid aside by sickness, but in every other case, work is the lot of us all, and it is the benefit of us all, and we ought never, under the pretense of piety, to endeavor to shirk it or run from it. You have heard, perhaps, of the very pious man who entered a monastery in order that he might spend all his time in devotion, so that when the time came for the brethren to go into the fields to work, he did not leave his cell. He was too spiritual to handle a hoe or a spade, so he continued in communion with angels. He was very much surprised, however, when the time came for the brotherhood to assemble in the refectory, and he was not called, and after waiting till the demands of hunger overcame the claims of his spiritual being, he went to the leader and asked why he had not been called to the meal, and he was informed that, as he was not working, it was thought that he was probably so spiritual that he didn't need to eat. And at any rate, the laws of the monastery did not permit him to eat until he had earned what he needed. There was much common sense in that reply, and our Lord Jesus Christ was not one of your lackadaisical, goody-goody sort of people who have nothing at all to do. Point me to a single wasted hour in our Savior's whole life. Show me one instance in which he was a sluggard, if you can. There is his life record before you, written by four truthful men. Put your finger, if you can, upon a single spot where he might be rightly accused of being sluggish. If he had been so, we might have had a warrant for interpreting this text to this lazy man's version of it, but it is not so. His motto ever was, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So, what's the point of all this? We should feed the hungry unless they are unwilling to work, in which case we should help them develop an attitude of willingness to work by withholding food from them, 
with the hope that that will encourage them to work in the same way that we shouldn't use spiritual excuses to avoid work. The church should not seek to use excuses to bar people from receiving food help and should really diligently work to enable everyone, even the idle, to become the non-idle, to become the productive, the fruitful, and the industrious, and we should help all that we are able to help. So ponder these words, ponder this challenge of Paul. I think the Bible calls us to a great amount of compassion and calls us away from enabling laziness and other things that uh, are not consistent with the character of Jesus. Well, let's continue. 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria during the 18th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat and reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like his father and mother, for he removed the sacred pillar of Baal his father had made. Nevertheless, Joram clung to the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. He used to pay the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Joram marched out from Samaria at that time and mobilized all of Israel. Then he sent a message to King Jehoshaphat of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Jehoshaphat said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Then he asked, which route should we take? And Joram replied, the route of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom set out. After they had traveled their indirect route for seven days, they had no water for the army or their animals. Then the king of Israel said, oh no, the Lord has summoned three kings only to hand them over to Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? Let's inquire of Yahweh through him. One of the servants of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, who used to pour water on Elijah's hands, is here. Jehoshaphat affirmed, The Lord's words are with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went to him. However, Elisha said to king Joram of Israel, We have nothing in common. Go to the prophets of your father and your mother. But the king of Israel replied, No, because it is the Lord who has summoned these three kings to hand them over to Moab. Elisha responded, As the Lord of hosts live, I stand before him. If I did not have respect for King Jehoshaphat of Judah, I would not look at you. I wouldn't take notice of you. Now bring me a musician. While the musician played, the Lord's hand came on Elisha. Then he said, This is what the Lord said. Dig ditch after ditch in this wadi, for the Lord says you will not see wind or rain, but the wadi will be filled with water and you will drink, you and your cattle and your animals. This is easy in the Lord's sight. He will also hand Moab over to you. Then you must attack every fortified city and every choice city. You must cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water. You must ruin every good piece of land with stones. About the time for the grain offering the next morning, water suddenly came from the direction of Edom and filled the land. All Moab had heard that the kings had come up to fight against him, so all who could bear arms from the youngest to the oldest were summoned and took their stand at the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw that the water across from them was red like blood. This is blood, they exclaimed. 
The kings have clashed their swords and killed each other. So to the spoil, Moab. However, when the Moabites came to Israel's camp, the Israelites attacked them and they fled from them. So Israel went into the land and struck down the Moabites. They destroyed the cities and each of them threw stones to cover every good piece of land. They stopped up every spring of water and cut down every good tree. In the end, only the buildings of Kir Haraseth were left. Then the men with slings surrounded the city and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took 700 swordsmen with him to try to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not do it. So he took his firstborn son, who was to become king in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering on the city wall. Great wrath was on the Israelites, and they withdrew from him and returned to their land. Psalm chapter 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people who spoke a foreign language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Why was it sea that you fled, Jordan that you turned back, mountains that you skipped like rams, hills like lambs? Tremble, earth, the presence of the Lord at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool the flint into a spring. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your faithful love, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord add to your numbers, both yours and your children's. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, nor any of those descending into the silence of death, but we will bless the Lord both now and forever. Hallelujah. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream And here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, In my vision at night I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man, and given a human mind. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. After this, while I was watching, suddenly another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. It had four heads and it was given dominion. After this, while I was watching in the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it and it had ten horns. While I was considering the horn, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. I watched then, because of the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I suddenly, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Amen. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me, and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all this, so he let me know the interpretation of these things. These these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to be clear about the fourth beast, the one different from all the others, extremely terrifying with iron teeth and bronze claws, devouring, crushing, and trampling with its feet whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before the three fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly, and that looked bigger than the others. As I was watching, this horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High for the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever." The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Hmm. Well, my friends, may the Lord bless you and strengthen you and keep you and guide you. Good day and Godspeed.